Uh, time for Monday's expert feature, and today's guest is preserving New Zealand history, one piece of furniture at a time. Uh, this afternoon, between now and 3pm, we're going to talk about antique restoration with Dr William Cottrell. He restores important colonial-made furniture, either for institutions or historical societies, even for the occasional private collection. And William's joining us from the Christchurch studio. Hello there. Kia ora, Jesse. Lovely to talk to you today. Uh, thank you yeah. very much for your time. And before we get into the stacks mm-hmm. of questions that are coming your way, could you tell us a bit about how you became interested in colonial-made furniture and, and got involved in this career? Sure, sure. But hey, first, uh, just hot tip for um, your last interview, yes. by Williams. Um, you have got to watch Billions if you haven't. Uh, we're just on the last two episodes of Succession, and honestly, Billions is just as good. William, I'm absolutely yeah. with you, and, and look, we'll review, we'll reserve a future TV reviewing slot for you if that's the sort yeah. of taste you've got. Um, no, the, uh, as I recall, Billions might have been a little affected by wasn't it, didn't uh, um, a season get uh, paused halfway through or something? Uh, My memories of that is it got a bit shaky towards the end, but I love the show. Great oh, characters, yeah. yeah, and plenty yeah. of money on screen. Well, what we liked was just the, the dialogue was just spectacular. Yeah. It was so Shakespearean and not a hint of violence in the whole thing. It was just That's quite true. a relief. That's yeah. true. Is it still yeah. going? I'm just trying to look um, it up. I'm not sure. We sort of stopped it a wee while back and then we got into a couple of other things. Yeah. Um, the last episodes of the series of Succession. And we've only got two left, so we've saved them for tonight. But again, those things, they, it's like House of Cards. They have a life and you always think they run at one sort of series too long. Mm-hmm. I agree yeah, with that. Yeah. Um, you should prepare for a late night, though, because these last uh, episodes of Succession are going longer and longer. Yeah, it's, we've got a 70 minute I think it's the last one here. <laughs> yeah. anyway. um, right, um, antiques. Yes. Um, what happened was I bought a house. I, had a, I was working for TVNZ and in my mid-20s, and I bought a house in Ponsonby um, back then for $54,000, which was um, – it hurt – and <laughs> I, yeah, it was an old villa, and I um, thought, oh, it was at the time when, um, uh, you know, gold and shares and art and everything was going through the roof, and interest rates were like 20%. And I thought, oh, I'll buy antiques. And then I thought, no, what I should do is buy antiques that belong to my Kauri villa, Edwardian villa. So I went up now Ponsonby Road and sort of saw what antique dealers were doing and started mm. buying a few things like that. And then I realised actually all they were doing was going to um, junk shops and auctions and then they were doing them up and fixing them and then making a profit and selling them on to me. So I sort of short-changed that and went back to the auction rooms and I just got thoroughly immersed in it and totally obsessed. And um, this is back in the early 1980s, I think. And then I finally gave up my job in television. I just became absolutely fixated. And I went to London and I just accidentally got this job restoring antiques um, just off Portobello Road at Labroke Grove for this very high-end company. And oh, my eyes were just open completely. I'd gone from uh, sort of the DIY end of things to literally high-end art restoration. It was um, just an education. Yeah, you must have known something about furniture to begin with, to know what you were looking for and, and just to be interested in it and, and to help you make choices about what you bought. Yeah, I think my um, favourite hobby at school was always um, woodwork. And um, 
I just always like beautiful things. And I think also the other thing that um, everyone likes is that sort of sense of discovery that sort of um, unearthing some treasure, that the archaeology of, you know, sort of finding something and then mm. relearning about it. And, and I love that idea of getting something that was once beautiful and then recreating that beauty. You know, I mean, it, over the years, the thing might have lost parts and it, things changed and altered through fashions and been painted or, you know, whatever. But, I mean, I'm really talking about high-end things, not like kitchen chairs and tables. So you can find these things even today. It's, it's amazing just what extraordinary things are out there. Yeah, and so we're all on yeah. the same page. What do we yeah. mean when we use the word restore? Yeah, um, the the thanks. That's the great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, there's restoration and conservation. Restoration is basically getting a thing and putting it back the way it was when it was first made. Um, if you do it correctly, what you should be doing is not showing that you've ever done anything to mm. it. So doing it so cleverly that you've used original materials, in my case wood, original adhesives like the old gelatine glues, um, shellac, resin-based polishes, waxes, that sort of thing. Not a lot of ingredients. Um, conservation, which is what museums tend to do, is basically putting the thing in a holding pattern, so stopping further degradation. And what I try to do is to bridge that gap so that pieces, because um, generally furniture, unlike artworks that hang on the wall, it gets a really hard time. So because they're in constant use, um, wood also has a nature of its own, so it, it contracts and swells and shrinks and warps and twists. And, you know, through changes in fashions, chest of drawers, the handles get changed. Um, people decide to do up things, and then, a, you know, a decade later, somebody else doesn't like it and does something <laughs> yeah. else to it, you know. By the time you've got an object, it's 140 years on. It's had a hell of a time. So I try to put things back to the way they would have looked but make it look as though, in all honesty, the way it should have been had it had a better life. So I really try to go back and reinterpret the original maker's intentions. And, and my focus, as you said, was um, early New Zealand-made um, wooden artefacts, so particularly furniture, and I go back to the 1840s, occasionally about three times in my life, the 1830s, but generally 1840s to around 1920. Anything in there that's really was once a beautiful object, I'll try to put it back. And then I always, my house is overflowing with stuff, and I've got this lovely wife that's so considerate. She parks her car out in the drive, and my garage <laughs> is full of, <laughs> you know, projects. But I do try and find historic um, houses, and occasionally I'll, you know, persuade a museum to take pieces. And it's never for profit. It's just to actually save these bits because um, I get so much pleasure from this. That I just want other people to enjoy what I, you know, feel as well. Someone's pointed this out, and I apologise if you've already um, heard this today, but it's the 70th anniversary of Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing's Ascent of Mount Everest, 29th of May, 1953. Well, we're talking about uh, times gone by today. We're going way back, though, from about the 1840s to the 1920s to look at antique furniture in New Zealand. Uh, William Cottrell is my guest, and I'll pepper my interview, William, with some questions from listeners. Yes. Uh, Jane has just purchased an early Victorian mahogany Pembroke table. 
She says on the centre panel are what appears to be three burn rings and some other small burn marks, which someone has tried to unsuccessfully remove, so the patina is uneven. What is the best way to restore the surface? She says she doesn't want it to look new. Uh, um, uh, these, these are awful sort of um, repairs to try and do on your own. In fact, you really can't. Um, I should preface this with saying that the worst um, damage that I find is um, amateur restorations. Um, huh. Yeah, just just uh, people sanding, scraping, grinding, um, replacing screws, putting in modern um, adhesives, particularly those two pot um, non-reversible ones, and any modern lacquer, plastic polymer finishes, um, just dreadful. When you've got something like that, her Pembroke table will be veneered. So what somebody says, a thin sheet of mahogany over a substrate that may be oak or pine. And what's happened, I mean, that sheet would be maybe less than a millimeter thick. Somebody will have tried to sort of sand this burnout. And so you've now got a dip in the veneer. Um, there's nothing she can really do, uh, except if I was doing it, I'd have to lift up part or all of the veneer, pack it out from the underneath with another veneer so I pop it back up again, and then lay the whole thing back down and um, level it so that most of that burn's gone out. What I would possibly then do is colour it out with a pigment. So I basically just use a light blocking pigment to blot out most of the burn. But the burn is quite often, say, a candle that's burnt down, which is quite a romantic thing, so you don't actually want to lose those candle mm. burns. Sometimes you'll get things where people have left cigarettes on the edge of a table and they've sort of got a long sort of burnt strip or something. But I've had burns where I just think they're part of the story. And you, once a thing's made, it's, that's the only time it's new. After that, all the damage is acceptable or unacceptable. So what you've got to do is look at the thing and think, well, if I'm just casually looking at the object, how much is that going to offend me? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I always look at the damage as part of its journey, and there's good damage and bad damage, and typically the bad damage is where somebody's taken to it with a sander or something, and you can see these orbital sander marks all over it, which was obviously a modern machine, um, or just um, children scratching names in, which is quite fun, but then there's a point where it isn't. Um, the worst thing I ever had was uh, somebody left a steam iron on a table, and going face down, and it burnt right through the table. So I had a Gosh. perfect hole right through the tabletop of a uh, steam iron burn. And it was a table made about 1870-ish, somewhere there, Kauri table, and I thought, oh, how do I deal with it? So I actually just put two chunks of wood back in, pulled the top apart, put two bits of wood back in, in the shape of the steam iron and just left it because I kind of think it, figured it was quite funny. I had a, um, a long case clock once where somebody had shot it right through the middle with a shotgun and um, sort of destroyed the pendulum in behind the, um, the door. And although the person alleged that it was an accident, it struck me as possibly not. It was a bit mm -hmm. too accurate. Um, we just rebuilt the whole thing. So uh, you can do one other one I had, it just springs to mind. I had a woman probably 30 years ago when I was in Auckland who brought in a um, uh, mahogany cabinet and her uh, um, husband, that 
um, divorced husband had come back and got very drunk one night for some reason and scoured sort of insults all over the top of his cabinet and I had to get these out and that where the wood's been cut the wood fibres have actually been kind of slashed it's it's really hard to reduce that but we managed to get them out to the point that um, uh, she was happy and I think the the damage um, was acceptable. Sometimes we'll use fillers like hard waxes and a lot of sort of paint techniques to sort of colour over damage that's just too hard. But what we don't ever do is scrape surfaces and sand surfaces. We just never do that. Um, the idea that somehow you can grind it back and you're going to get a better piece is just wrong. You do lose all the patina. So I'm sorry to say that that Pembroke table, um, very tricky. I would suggest you get, say, a hard wax filler stick and just melts wax over the top. That's one from an antique um, product supplier. And just very gently, um, with a little bit of wood or something, like a ice cream stick or something like that, just level it down because the wax is still soft. Mm. It'll block it out. It'll get the height back. Um, and you can French polish straight over the top if you want, but don't ever put it in sunlight because it will, you know, heat, it will melt again. This is probably a silly yeah. question, but yeah. how, do you, how do you tell when you look at a piece of furniture whether it is in your era or not? Style? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Material? Yes, all of those. Um, well, so I concentrate on New Zealand-made furniture. So when we first turned up here, Europeans, in the 1830s, nails were still being made, handmade. So you will find totally handmade nails or what we call cut nails where they were made out of sheets that were sliced. Uh, the wire nails that we know today, the generic ones, weren't really around until the 1890s. So you'll get square cut nails before then. You'll get screws up until about the early 1860s that have got blunt tips on them, not the sort of carrot-shaped type ones or the modern sort of posy drive things that came in late towards the end of the 20th century. So um, hardware, um, handles changed a lot. Knobs really were the thing until about... Um, the 1870s, then pressed and cast metal handles came in. Um, casters, that's the little wheels on the bottom, were all brass until about the mid-1850s. Then they became porcelain. Uh, so there's lots of those things. Also, the use of timbers changed quite a bit. Um, you start to find the introduction of sort of plywoods and um, modern composite boards in the early 20th century. Uh, but style is really the biggest indicator, and it's like, um, anybody's conscious of fashions. Not all antique furniture is just carved and curly and with turned legs or something. I mean, you can dissect it down very quickly and you can figure out within about five years of when a piece has been made. Oh, that's incredible. And, and I guess yeah. they're distinctly New Zealand, um, not just because they're using New Zealand native timbers, but they would yeah. have developed their own style in this part of the world? No, not at all. Um, apart from Maori motifs or um, purely Pacific motifs, um, that were, say, inlaid or engraved onto um, bits of furniture, they were pretty much all European huh. and, and particularly British. So we were making British copies. Well, it's like our houses aren't particularly colonial. You will find equivalent examples in North America and, of course, England, Ireland. Um, we copied. I mean, Britain, uh, New Zealand back then was just an extension of the British Empire. Yeah. So we weren't really trying to have um, our own individual sort of iconography. 
Do you ever see things for sale that are ridiculously underpriced that people don't actually realise what they've got? Oh, Jesse, every week. Mm. I was in the gym a couple of hours ago and a guy phoned me up and there was this um, bookcase on for sale on the internet. He said, quick, quick, tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> now, this is a fabulous bookcase. It was Kauri and it was grained to look like walnut. So it had a paint finish over the top. Now, the bookcase itself was made in say, the mid-1870s, and it was a spectacular example. And I told him about this piece last week, and I said, oh, honestly, you've just got to get this. So he finally got it for $700. And I'm sitting there with all the clatter of the you know, barbells and machines going on behind me and trying to sort of encourage him to buy it because it was easily the best example I'd seen in wow. possibly two decades um, yeah, no, look, I often see things for $150, $200 on the internet or in some auction thing around the country, and they just go, they're invisible. And I can't buy the world. I can't save everything, and my wife would divorce me if I tried to put another thing <laughs> in the house. But, I, imagine, I imagine you've already pushed it to its limit. Oh, I have, I have. Oh, she's so nice. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but just want to like save everything and find a home for it. So I, I do try and encourage other people um, to buy these and just look after them because just because people at the moment don't put a monetary value on them doesn't make them not important. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was down in Taranaki, or up in Taranaki now, and I was going to um, see an antique dealer who was selling me a table, which is now in our bedroom. And I got halfway there, and I found in a wee town, one of those little ones like Eltham or somewhere, um, an antique chair. And it was made in Rimu, and it was in stunningly beautiful condition. The chair was um, just like 60 or 80 bucks, I can't remember, something yeah. like this. And the chair was made by a guy called um, – sorry, it was designed by a guy called Edward Buckton Lamb in 1829, I think. And then it was published in 1833 in John Loudon's Encyclopedia, copies of which came out to New Zealand here in the early 1840s. So that – and there was one chairmaker I know in Taranaki who was making chairs in that vaguely neo-Gothic style. So um, I – the table I went to get was just irrelevant. This thing just absolutely made my day and mm -hmm. it made my month. And honestly, I lived on that discovery for the next few months. And, and it's now into Papa, where it should be. Um, you know, and rescuing something like that is just so much fun. I just love it. Didn't have to do anything to it. Um, oh, a small adjustment to one, a couple of the back legs, but nothing of any status. But just finding something like that's once in a decade. Um, yeah, I love it. But, but most people wouldn't have, wouldn't know. No. I mean, it was grotesquely ugly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lots of questions coming through, lots yes, of questions yes. coming through. Somebody has an 1870 Burr Tortara sideboard. What wax should they use? Is that something that, uh, that oh a my consumer God. would be able to find? Oh, my God, find? I want to see a photo of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Burr Tortara is always good. Um, it was always used on very, very high-quality furniture. Oh. Yes. Look, less is more. Um, uh, waxing, you can wax to your heart's content. It's like polishing your boots. You can never overdo it. Um, wax is totally reversible. Uh, just any generic wax that you would buy from, say, Mitre 10, that's by a reputed supplier. Do not go oiling things. 
Yeah. Um, oiling is pretty destructive. Sticky, horrible, gooey, non-reversible stuff that gets into the wood fibres and you can't get out, and it discolours the wood. It um, yellows with age. Um, it's not a thing to do. But waxing, uh, just go for it. Um, you can make your own wax just by getting beeswax and warming it in turpentine and you can get a bit of canalba wax. Sometimes you can get it from the chemist. It's the wax um, shells that they make pills out of. You know when you pull the pills apart? Yeah. It's that soluble wax so you can eat the stuff. But it's a very hard vegetable palm oil wax so you can um, dissolve a bit of that into your beeswax to harden up the wax. It'll make it glossier and shinier when you burnish it. Love it. Um, yeah. Jane says she's got a dining table. Uh, her dining table is a Cody rectory table from an Auckland convent. Um, what product should they use when getting it restored? They're not sure what they used last time, but it's become difficult to clean, almost sticky, and seems to absorb newsprint and coloured print dye. Yeah. Um, I think what she's done is probably, and I'm guessing here, got one of those proprietary sort of... Uh, furniture reviver products that are mm. got colours in them, got sticky oils in them. They've got a lot of nice things that smell but don't do any good. Um, she should try to get some very fine steel wool and turpentine, not methylated spirits, turpentine, and spend a couple of hours very carefully half scrubbing, half mopping mm. all of that sticky stuff off and then turn around and do what I just said before, put some proper wax on it. And you can never over-wax. The trick to getting a nice clean, not too clean, but a nice finish, is getting it smooth. It's the preparation. It's mm-hmm. The finishing is, like, quick. It's, it's all the homework you do beforehand. So um, turpentine and very fine, that's zero grade steel wool and don't do it like you're scrubbing the frying pan where you're sort of trying to get that last bit of baked on grit off the bottom do it very evenly with long sweeping strokes I mean this is about as much as I'm really prepared to divulge because <laughs> anything more than that people will get into trouble okay. look honestly they can email me I, uh, my inbox is full every day with stuff so lots <laughs> a few more <laughs> um, how does an antique restorer deal with Bora asks one person and more specifically yep. from Bruce, uh, I've just acquired a dining room table and eight chairs that my grandmother purchased in the early 1930s from a retired doctor in Mount Roskill. It's made yep. from oak, but each chair has about six borer holes in it. How would you attack this problem and how do you tell if the borer is 80 years old or just from last month? Oh, okay, great question. And this is one that I oh, endless conversations on. Um, right, the first thing is get a bottle of wine, sit on the back porch and forget about your borer. Uh-huh. Just drink the wine. The second <laughs> is it's not really interested in your furniture. If it was going to eat it, it's had 80 years or so to eat mm-hmm. it. It would have got it long before now. It'll really only attack uh, sapwood where the sort of sweeter sugars are in the out- outer um parts of the tree and oh, yeah. typically furniture is not really made of sapwood sometimes the backboards and chests and things are so it's the bane of my life where people have hacked off great you know lumps of wood in order to get rid of a few borer beetles the thing about borer is that those insects are just around in your garden the whole time they're not really interested in eating your house or your furniture and a few holes will not matter it really won't um, I just choke them up with wax and get on with life um, i tell this to people and they still think somehow it's got some irreversible disease. Um, Your house is full of, if it's an old sort of 
Mount Roskilly type sort of native timber house, good wood and some not so good wood that's buried in the walls. And they would have eaten it long before now. They don't fly from one bit of furniture to the next and just stay there. They have they go through a whole life cycle, so they actually want to eat a rotting bit of wood out in the garden or in the mm-hmm. forest or somewhere. And it just happens that when they it's time for them to lay their eggs and you know pupate into grubs, that's what they've found. But it's not common to find a piece of furniture that's just been totally devastated. It really isn't. Um, Bora is just not on my list of things to worry about. <laughs> uh, I've got a note uh, from my producer mm. to ask you about People who upscale pieces into shabby chic. Now, I don't really know what they're talking about, so can you explain this to me? And <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, um, this is a new fashion where people get old bits of furniture and they um, think they'll shabby chic them and paint them and turn them into something else. And sometimes they get some really, really good things. And often it's because they're just so cheap that, they don't know what they've got or they don't care or they think they can get some money. Um, the bookcase I mentioned earlier that got sold today for $700, um, I found a chiffonier uh, a couple of years back made by the same man and it was also painted, painted and grained and it was a fabulously good example and that suddenly disappeared off the internet and I think it sold for about 75 or $80. And about three weeks later, it turned up on Trade Me for about eight or nine hundred dollars, uh-huh. and somebody had painted the things, sanded it to look like it had been scuffed, um, and totally destroyed it. Uh, there's no comeback from something like that. Oh. So, uh, yeah, no. what I what I would say is, please do your homework first, research, ask, just don't go ahead and think it because it was cheap that it's a worthless object. I mean, some of the things that I've got at home are just absolutely beautiful, and they were just a few hundred dollars or even less than that. I mean, I'm not counting the three weeks that they took me to do up or anything. You know, that's sort of my Mm. free time. But um, things are just ridiculously cheap. And when you look at New Zealand art, you know, even a bad major artist, a Goldie or something, could be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. you just couldn't spend that much on early, really high-end furniture. You just couldn't find enough. Um, you could put together a really major collection for forty or fifty thousand dollars, even at today's prices. So somewhere something's got to change. I want to talk to you about a couple of your favourite pieces. Just a quick one. People are inquiring about. You mentioned terps. Is all terps the same? Uh, is there good terps yeah. and bad terps? No, nah, it's just a solvent. It's just in, anything will do. All you're doing is basically using it as a solvent to take stuff off. It's not that it stays in the wood surface. So no anything. I just use the cheapest products. I use um, for French polishing. I use meths that's got the purple dye in it. Um, you know, I just use very basic materials. So shellac, wax, bit of turpentine, methylated spirits, some steel wool as an abrasive. Um, that's pretty much it. That's all Tell you us, need is your finishing products. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Tell us about the work table by Henry Mason you found. Uh, Henry Mason. Oh, um, well, uh, 
the Henry Mason work table was, was oh I know that's the Parnell one yeah 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 oh I'd just come back from London I was in my early 30s and I went for dinner over in St George's Bay Road at an old house right on the sort of bottom end there the old captain's house and these people had this table there and it was a little sort of neo-Grecian table in um, Rimu bit smaller than the ladies' Pembroke table with a sort of inlaid top and in prairie with a little border of um, specimen timbers and native timbers. And I thought, gosh, that's a good thing. And time went by and these people got divorced and then it turned up an auction and then I oh, lost my nerve and I didn't buy it and then a dealer got it and then I felt really bad and this is, you know, still talking 30 years ago. Yeah. And then I got another dealer to go and buy it off that dealer and then I did get it and then I fixed it and then I didn't know what it was but I just loved it and then time went on and then uh, when I was doing my PhD I discovered that um, there was an early pattern book by a guy called George Smith and um, I found that there was an identical pattern of this table in that pattern book. Uh, This is an English pattern book by the Mm. way and it was published in 1826 and I thought, me, this is an important bit. Then I went into uh, papers past and found an advertisement by an Auckland cabinet maker called John Mason. And he had copied some of the details out of George Smith's pattern book. So I thought, ah, he must have made it. And I put this in my thesis. And then about a decade ago, a woman contacted me and she said, John Mason was a, the cabinet maker in Auckland who actually immigrated to Wellington, I think, in 1842. He was a great-great-great-great-grandfather. And she's got this original pattern book with that exact picture in. And so I said, send me the picture. And she showed me the picture. And, of course, he'd sketched in a stretcher across the bottom, which my one had. And the original George Smith pattern didn't have the stretcher and it had casters on. So I knew that that pattern book, this big bound volume, and my work table was made by John Mason and had sat in the same workshop uh, he was up in Meadowbank he, at St. John's College. He had a workshop up there around 1850 when he had moved to Auckland. So the two bits were in the same workshop at the same time and he used that pattern to model my table off. And I'm really pleased to say that both those pieces are now into Papa. So the pattern book huh. and the table that was made from them. Yeah. That's how just how many pieces have you contributed yeah. to in to Papa? Oh... Uh, 70 or 80, I suppose. Oh, something. gosh. I've lost count. Um, not all directly through me, but sometimes through people wanting to donate pieces, and I've sort of helped them, nurse them to get them there. Um, but, yeah, no, yeah, there'd be at least that, and, and way more than that are other museums around the country, I would think. Uh, can you handle a challenge, William? Mike, sure. Mike says, mm-hmm. sorry to disagree, but Mike doesn't think Tortara likes wax finishes. He reckons it's got a resin in it that resists waxes and grows a bloom on the surface under the waxes if you use them. No. He says, says a friend makes fine furniture from Tortara and uses Harlem oil, many light coats with 400 grit rub downs in between for excellent results. Oh, well, if it works for him, fine. But um, <laughs> I, um, I've got lots of Tortara in the house. And uh, Tortara does have a resin in it, which does, as you know, it. it it lasts very well on the ground. It will resist polyurethanes and modern plastic finishes. You can't just directly polyurethane totara, but you can certainly wax onto it. Um, um, he can disagree as much as he likes, but I'll, 
I'll have a, a jousting competition with two bits <laughs> of Totara with him at once. <laughs> <laughs> do we have a problem with New Zealand antiques being exported? Yes, I do. Um, I've stopped uh, quite a few, but I often don't get to hear about it. Um, probably the most important one was actually a Totara table by Johann Levain. He was a cabinet maker that turned up in, again, 1840 in Wellington. By 1843, he'd gone back and to England, and he set up a workshop there, and he made some very, very important pieces in England. But I discovered a table about, I don't know, 20-odd years ago that was about to go off to Hong Kong, I think, and from a dealer was selling it in Auckland, and he said the woman had sort of left um, a deposit or something but hadn't come back to buy it. So I actually bought the thing because um, dealers like money, so that was easy, <laughs> and then um, rescued it, stopped it. It turned out to be the only piece that we knew of that had been domestically made by mm. Johann Levain. It's also now in Te Papa. But about five years ago or something like that, I was doing some research at Te Papa and I discovered yet another table that they'd had there that was also by Johann Levain. They'd had it all along since the 1860s. They were miscatalogued. So we went from no pieces to a cabinet maker that turned up in 1840 to two pieces. So I was thrilled. Um, do you enjoy walking around? Yeah, uh, well yeah. done. Do, do you enjoy walking around to Papa and, and having a look at those uh, things that you've been involved with and seeing them um, protected <laughs> and in place, or have you sort of moved on by the time they've um, been passed on to the museum? Oh well, most of them are actually in storage. Very few bits ever get displayed. Yeah. yeah, so you have to actually ask um, to go and look at their sort of storage area facilities. To and they're all created up, so they have to have a, put on a. Um, uh, a special exhibition, uh, which they haven't done yet, on purely New Zealand-made furniture. Oh, wow. Uh, I know, I know. I really like it to happen because I think people would really, really be amazed at how clever uh, early furniture makers were and, and how astonishing some of our early timbers are, How just how beautiful they are. Only got a minute or so to go. We've talked a bit sure. about... Um pieces that people don't realise their value but does the opposite yeah. happen as well where a family thinks that they've got something really valuable or historic and uh, they don't yeah they do and sometimes I get t um, contacted and I have to say look I'm sorry what the family legend was but you know this just isn't that good mm. and I do get these things where it's been sort of passed down and they always say oh my grandmother told me and her grandmother told her and she would never lie never lie you know? and I go yeah but I know it was only made in sort of 1915 20 and it's sort of like it's a really not a good thing and it's <laughs> you know I don't know how to tell you any other way because if I don't tell them they go on thinking they've got this inheritance fortune and they just don't I feel bad I'm caught either way so I just tell what I I, I say what I think Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, we've got lots of people asking if we can get you back, William, so perhaps sure. down the line. I think it's been six years since we did last time. We won't make, uh, make <laughs> people wait that long. Um, yep. Thank you very much for what you're doing and for explaining it to us patiently today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome, and I'd love to come back. Dr William Cottrell, he's been talking about antique furniture restoration, and we tried to get through as many of your questions as we could. Uh, sorry if you sent one in and you didn't get a reply.